Hi everyone. Thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we followed the careers of Sven Estridsson's five sons, who succeeded each other as kings of Denmark. During the six decades of their reign, Denmark was definitely transformed from a Viking society to a medieval kingdom. One of the best indications of that is the development of the church in Denmark from the middle of the 11th century until the 12th. In that time, it became a wealthy and powerful institution favored by the kings and granted both rich farmland and other incomes independent of the crown. Scandinavia was separated from the Archbishopric of Hamburg-Bremen and a local archbishop took up residence in Lund. The very first of those archbishops was even appointed co-regent when King Eric Evergood set out on his ill-fated pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The symbiotic relationship between the crown and the cross could also be seen in the fact that not only one, but two members of the royal family were proclaimed to be saints at this time. Both of them were named Knut, because why make things easy? The murder of the second of those saints, Knut Lavard, by his cousin, who was jealous of and frightened by Knut's power and popularity, set off a civil war in Denmark that saw members of the extended royal family fighting for control over the kingdom for years to come. Today, we'll follow that struggle in some detail, but also look at how the rest of Scandinavia was rocked by very similar conflicts of their own more or less at the same time. Even though the church did what it could to promote the idea that the right of succession belonged exclusively to the firstborn male within wedlock, that principle was still not universally recognized in Scandinavia, and that ambiguity in combination with the fact that an early medieval Scandinavian king still had a weak power base, making it relatively easy for others with comparable power bases to topple the king, meant that war was all but inevitable. Episode 35, The Pretenders. We finished last week with the death of King Niels and his son Magnus, and the triumph of Eric in the Danish Civil War, triggered by Magnus' murder of Knut Lavard, later Saint Knut No. 2. As you may remember from last time, Eric was one of King Eric Evergood's illegitimate sons. Since he had only survived the first part of the civil war against his uncle and his cousin by escaping them, Eric had been given the nickname Harefoot. Perhaps not the most flattering nickname, but the strategy ultimately paid off, and with a little help from the Holy Roman Emperor Lothar III, Eric managed to defeat Magnus at the Battle of Futevik on June 4, 1134, from which his uncle Niels escaped only to be killed by the townspeople of Schleswig three weeks later. Once he was king, Eric made sure to upgrade his nickname to Eric the Memorable, because that's the kind of thing you can do when you've fought your way to the top, killing selected parts of your extended family on the way. One of the things Eric is memorable for is punishing his adversaries severely and rewarding his supporters handsomely, especially the church. An example of his severe punishments was served to his half-brother Harold the Spear. As you may recall from last time, Harold had initially been fighting together with Eric to avenge their brother Knut Lavard's murder, but Harold later switched sides to Niels and Magnus because he was jealous of Eric being elected king. Now, when Eric had won the civil war, he had Harold chased down and killed. Eric also made sure to have Harold's sons killed for good measure. 
That wasn't necessarily because he was a bloodthirsty tyrant, though, but because, not least, his own rise to power showed how important it was to keep the living potential pretenders to the throne at a minimum. Also, he had just killed their dad, so the risk of any surviving sons trying to avenge their father's death was pretty high. So the killing of his nephews was basically sound policy, maybe even necessary. Unfortunately, one of Harald's sons, called Olav, got away. He'll be back to cause trouble, but not for Eric the Memorable. But just because this Olav character won't mess with Eric the Memorable, that doesn't mean that Eric's rule was secure. In an attempt to strengthen his grip on the Danish throne, Eric started the campaign for the canonization of his brother, Knut Lovard, that we talked about last time. To make sure the church was on his side, he also donated land and money to various ecclesiastical institutions, and even made the archbishop's nephew the Bishop of Roskilde. Another activity that Eric the Memorable is remembered for, and one that surely appealed to the church, was his crusades against Slavic tribes living along the southern shore of the Baltic Sea. In the year 1135, Slavic forces raided Roskilde, but King Eric defeated them in a naval battle. The following year, Eric went on the offensive, and in the summer of 1136, he set out on a crusade against the pagan Slavs living on the island of Rügen. This kind of crusade will soon develop into something of a favorite pastime among Danish and Swedish kings, who will recast their raids against the Baltic Sea as honorable wars to win souls for Christ, and, as a spin-off effect, land and glory for themselves. The capital of the Slavs living in Rügen was a town called Arkona, and was situated on a peninsula in the northern part of the island. King Eric ordered his men to isolate the town by digging a canal across the narrow peninsula, and since this also cut Arkona off from its only freshwater source, the townspeople weren't able to hold out very long and flung the gates open to the Danes. But Eric didn't just fight heathens. He also campaigned in Sweden and Norway, sacking and burning. The year after forcing Arkona on his knees, by the way, he burned Oslo to the ground. None of this made Eric the Memorable particularly popular among his neighbors. Worse for King Eric, though, was the fact that he wasn't particularly well-liked at home either. You could even say that he was downright unpopular. A rebellion broke out, led by the ungrateful Bishop of Roskilde, who had Eric to thank for his elevation. Despite the fact that the rebellion spread quickly among the nobles of Zealand, Funen and Jutland, Eric managed to crush it before the rebels were able to topple him. But it was only a temporary reprieve. On September 18, 1137, King Eric attended the Urnhoved thing in southern Jutland. There, he was approached by a local nobleman who had something to ask the king. The nobleman was carrying a spear, but since there was a block of wood stuck to the pointy end, the king wasn't particularly alarmed. As soon as he was close enough to the king to be sure he wasn't wearing any protective mail, the nobleman removed the block of wood and skewered the king. The king's nephew, who of course also was called Eric, immediately drew his sword to cut down his uncle's murderer, but the nobleman kept his cool and pointed out to young Eric that since he was the only male adult in the family, he had a good chance of becoming the next king. Or as he put it, a juicy piece of meat has fallen into your bowl. And it worked. The nobleman got away with murder, and Eric was elected king of Denmark. This new King Eric, the third on the throne of Denmark so far, was the son of one of Eric Evergood's daughters. On his father's side, he was the great-grandson of King Magnus the Good, who had been king of both Norway and Denmark. So he was well-connected. But despite his excellent pedigree, Eric still had to fight for his throne. This is when Olav, 
the one son of Harold the Spear, who survived Eric the Memorable's bloody pruning of the family tree, came back to stir up trouble. Just like Eric, Olav was the grandson of Eric Evergood, but since he was descended through a male line, he could argue that his claim was stronger than Eric's. Olav established a base of power in Scania, and from there he tried to push his cousin off the Danish throne. The fighting went on for a couple of years, until Eric finally defeated and killed Olav near the town of Helsingborg in northwestern Scania in the year of 1141. Eric had won, but the continued civil war had weakened Denmark and its defenses. When the king had been busy fighting his cousin in Scania, Slavs had been raiding Danish coastal communities and waterways without running into much organized resistance. The situation in the kingdom was gloomy. Maybe that's why Eric decided he'd had enough. Because already in the year 1146, he announced that he was quitting. As the first, and so far only, Danish monarch in history, Eric abdicated and retired to St. Knut's Abbey in Odense, where he intended to spend the rest of his time on this earth. That time turned out to be quite short, and ex-King Eric died already later that same year on August 27th. He was buried in the Abbey. Both his contemporaries and historians have speculated about the reason for his abdication. Some say it was because he realized he wasn't able to do the job, and others that he was a deeply pious man and preferred to dedicate his life to God than to earthly affairs. If that's the case, it's a pity he didn't reach that realization a few years earlier. It could have saved quite a few lives. Anyway, he was given the posthumous nickname Eric Lamb, either in reference to the Lamb of God, indicating that he was a pious and mild-hearted man, or referring to the fact that he was weak and a softy who wasn't able to do the job of king after all. Unfortunately for Denmark, Eric Lamb didn't have any legitimate heirs, so when he stepped down, the civil war was reignited with renewed vigor. After the abdication of Eric Lamb in 1146, the noblemen of Jutland in the west got together and elected a son of Magnus, King Niels' son, King of Denmark. His name was Knut, and he was the fifth guy with that name to become King of Denmark. The only problem was that, more or less at the same time, the noblemen in Scania and Zealand in the east elected another king. They were backing a guy called Sven, who was the illegitimate son of King Eric the Memorable and the nephew of Knut Lavard. So now Denmark had two kings, Knut V and Sven III. The father of the former had murdered the uncle of the latter. Awkward. I'm sure it doesn't come as too much of a shock to anyone to know that Knut and Sven soon were engaged in a renewed civil war, trying to eliminate the other and to become sole ruler of all of Denmark. Sven III was supported by his cousin Valdemar, who was the son of Knut Lavard, but Knut V was supported by the archbishop, at least to begin with. But Sven managed to tempt the archbishop over to his side by donating land in Scania and on the island of Bornholm to the church. Whether it was the archbishop's support that did the trick or not, I can't tell you, but Sven then went on to win a battle over Knut on the island of Zealand. After that, the two sides agreed to lay down their arms and unite against a common enemy, the Slavs. In the year 1147, they set out on a joint crusade against the Slavs living east of the river Elbe in the modern-day borderland of Germany and Poland. But this newfound unity didn't last long. Sven was annoyed that Knut didn't help him when he got into a naval battle with the Slavs, so the civil war was back on again. After several battles that I really don't see any point in getting into here, Sven had a breakthrough 
and captured the island of Funen and even parts of Knut's heartland, Jutland. To secure his southern flank, he set up his cousin Valdemar, the son of Knut Lavard, as Duke of Schleswig. In 1150, Sven managed to drive Knut out of the country altogether, and the now exiled Knut V fled to the court of the King of Sweden, whose daughter Helena he had set his eyes on marrying. But King Sverker of Sweden was not willing to marry his daughter off to some has-been ex-king, so they weren't married until later, after Sverker's death. Luckily for Knut and Helena, they didn't have to wait very long, but we'll get back to that in just a bit. In the year 1152, Frederick I, called Barbarossa because of his noteworthy red beard, became king of Germany, and Knut thought that this change in management in Germany may be his chance to reclaim Denmark, so he asked Frederick for assistance. But if Knut had hoped for military intervention from the Germans to crush his opponent, he was disappointed. Barbarossa did broker a compromise, though, between the two rivals. According to this deal, Sven would remain the premier king of Denmark, but Knut would be granted a large part of the kingdom to run as he saw fit. Valdemar was confirmed as Duke of Schleswig. Knut accepted this deal because it was the best he could get, and so did Sven. But King Sven never honored the agreement, and never handed over more than insignificant tracts of land to his rival. I don't know if Sven thought that Knut would just accept this, or that his own position was so strong that it was unassailable, but if so, he was wrong. In fact, not only did he provoke Knut into planning for a renewal of hostilities, but he also managed to alienate large parts of the Danish nobility with his high-handedness and what they saw as his pro-German politics. Sven even annoyed his cousin Valdemar, and in the year 1154, two years after Barbarossa's deal, Sven was toppled by Knut and Valdemar, who was finally convinced to abandon Sven when Knut promised to make him his co-ruler in the new post-Sven Denmark. King Sven was forced to flee to Germany, and in Denmark, Knut and Valdemar celebrated their new friendship by Valdemar being crowned co-king and marrying Knut's half-sister Sophia, who was only 14 at the time. Sven spent three years in Germany contemplating the shifting tides of fortune and trying to drum up military support to make sure that there would be one last definite shift in his favor. By 1157, his drumming had borne fruit and he could return to Denmark backed by German troops. But when war seemed inevitable yet again, the Danish nobles stepped in. They'd had quite enough of war, thank you very much, at least civil war waged on their own lands, they much preferred a peaceful settlement and forced Sven, Knut and Valdemar to accept a new deal. Denmark was to be divided into three parts, Jutland, Zealand and Scania, and they would all get one piece each. Sven went first and chose Scania, then Knut chose Zealand, leaving Jutland to Valdemar. Everyone breathed a deep sigh of relief. The civil war was finally over, and to celebrate this new glorious solution to all their problems and the renewed friendship of the three magnates, a grand peace banquet was arranged at Knut's residence in Roskilde on August 9th, 1157. Sven and Valdemar joined their host for a splendid feast that had gone down in history under the name of the Blood Feast of Roskilde. Because of course Sven didn't have any plans whatsoever on honoring this deal either, Instead, he intended to take the opportunity to eliminate the two others, now when he had the chance. And Sven's men did manage to get to Knut and have him killed, but Valdemar escaped with only a wound to his thigh. 
Together with his foster brother Absalom, who we'll have reason to return to in a future episode, Valdemar fled the blood feast and managed to reach Jutland. Sven realized that his plan had backfired and that he had to finish the job if he didn't want to risk yet another civil war. So he raised his army to hunt down Valdemar and kill him before his cousin would have the chance to organize his defense. Unfortunately for Sven, Valdemar's army grew rapidly because people were shocked and outraged at what Sven had done. Valdemar made sure to keep out of Sven's striking distance for the rest of the summer, but as the fall arrived, he felt that he was strong enough to go on the offensive. On October 23rd, Sven's and Valdemar's armies faced each other on a heath in Jutland. The battle was short, brutal, and ended with the definitive defeat of Sven's side because Sven had failed to realize from which direction Valdemar's main attack would come, and when his cousin finally struck, Sven understood that the battle was lost. So Sven hoped to escape and to continue the war, but maybe the surprise attack had managed to make him flustered, or maybe he panicked because he drove his horse into the boggy shores of a lake where it stuck. Struggling to get away, Sven lost his weapons, and when some angry peasants showed up, the hapless king was caught and axed to death. Since all the other pretenders to the Danish throne were dead, Valdemar became the king of all of Denmark. As soon as he'd eliminated all of Sven's remaining allies, the new king finally put an end to the civil war. With Valdemar as king, Denmark entered a phase of expansion and prosperity. We'll talk more about Valdemar and his foster brother Absalon in a future episode. But for now, let's turn our attention to the chaos that raged further north, in Sweden. When we spoke about Sweden last, way back in episode 28, Swedes and Geats, we ended with the death of Eamon the Old in the year 1060, marking the traditional end of the Viking Age in Sweden. With him, the dynasty of Eric the Victorious had run out of living male members. What followed was about 200 years of struggle for the Swedish throne. Most of the kings during these years were Geats, with the occasional Swede thrown in to keep things interesting. As you can imagine, it was a chaotic time in Swedish history, or at least, that's generally assumed to have been the case, because there are hardly any surviving Swedish sources from this time period. So, let's jump straight into it, shall we? King Eamon the Old was followed by the first medieval king of Sweden, Stenshiel, but he died already in 1066. The only thing we know about him was that he preferred a good dinner to warfare, and that when he died, war broke out between two pretenders to the throne, both called Eric. Some historians have claimed that one of them was the son of Stangil and a Christian, whereas the other was neither. For that reason, they're sometimes referred to as Eric Stangil's son and Eric the Heathen. But there's really no basis for this claim, and whoever they were, they soon proceeded to kill each other. Into the power vacuum left by the two Erics stepped a guy called Håkon the Red, and he was made king. But that didn't last long either, and instead, Two previously exiled sons of Stainshiel returned and became co-kings. One of these brothers was called Inge, and I'm not going to burden you with the name of the other one since, like so often seems to be the case in situations like these, he died soon after ascending the throne next to his brother. But we do know that they existed, because there's correspondence preserved between them and the Pope. But apparently the Holy Father didn't know much else about Sweden, because he instructs the kings to send a priest to Rome to inform him about conditions in Sweden and to receive instructions about how to govern the church there. One thing the pontiff did know though, tithing had not yet been introduced in Sweden and his letter urged the kings to open up this ecclesiastical revenue stream ASAP. 
By the way, if you haven't guessed it already, this is the same King Inge who was chased into exile in the year 1084 when he refused to sacrifice to the old gods at Uppsala and was replaced by his brother-in-law, sacrificing Sven. But, as I mentioned back in episode 33, Church and State, after only three years, Inge was back, burned Sven alive in his home and then went on to destroy the temple at Uppsala. King Inge was a contemporary of King Magnus Barefoot of Norway, and it was to put an end to Magnus's invasions that King Eric Evergood of Denmark brokered a deal where Magnus married Inge's daughter, Margaret Peacemaiden. As I'm sure you remember from last time, Margaret was only married to Magnus for a short while since he went off to Ireland and had himself killed by his treacherous Irish ally. She then went on to marry Eric Evergood's brother, Niels, who had succeeded as King of Denmark. As Queen, Margaret apparently ran that country more competently than anyone else in her generation, and she did so for a quarter of a century. When King Inge of Sweden eventually died, he was succeeded by his two nephews, who became co-kings. Once again, one died soon afterward, but the surviving nephew reigned on alone as King Inge the Younger. But beyond surviving, his track record isn't particularly impressive. During his reign, the mountainous region of Jämtland in the northwest of Sweden was lost to Norway, and a man who claimed to be the son of sacrificing Sven made himself king in Ostrogothia. Inge the Younger didn't have to suffer all these humiliations for long though, because he was poisoned and died sometime in the middle of the 1120s, after only a few years on the throne. When Inge the Younger died, the Swedes and the Geats elect different kings, effectively breaking up the country again. The Geats elected Magnus, the son of Danish King Niels and Margaret Peacemaiden. The king the Swedes had elected set off to the land of the Geats soon after he was elected, but never returned home again. It may seem foolish of him to go on a journey into enemy territory so soon after ascending the throne, but you see, he didn't really have much of a choice. To be king of Sweden, the law stipulated that you had to travel through the country, both the land of the Swedes and the Geats, and be confirmed as the rightful king at specific things. If you didn't fulfill this obligation, you weren't considered the legitimate monarch. This was an elaborate process with lots of rules about safe conduct, following a certain path, and accepting hostages from local noble families when traveling through their regions. At fixed points, the newly elected king would switch hostages and move on to the next region. This tradition actually still exists, and whenever a new monarch accedes to the Swedish throne, he or she will undertake such a journey. Obviously, many of the details, such as the route, have changed. Also, hostages are no longer required. Anyway, the newly elected Swedish king was trying to fulfill this duty, but since the Westrogothians didn't accept him as king, they didn't see any reason to grant him safe conduct and killed him instead. Magnus, as I'm sure you remember from last time, was far more interested in succeeding his father as king of Denmark, so he had Knut Lavard killed and sparked the Danish civil war that eventually brought about his own death at the Battle of Fotovik Bay in June 1134. When Magnus died, the Geats agreed to make the new-ish king of, Swe of the Swedes their king as well. His name was Sverker, and he was after all a Geat. He was a pious Christian who implemented several ecclesiastical reforms to incorporate Sweden into the fold of the Roman Catholic Church once and for all. During his reign, the first monasteries were founded in the country, and he made sure that the Swedish church started to pay their taxes to the Vatican. So there's no reason to doubt his religious credentials, even though the founder of his dynasty was a man called Ketil the Heathen. Beyond his piety, not much is known about King Sverker, except, of course, that he didn't agree to his daughter Hel Helena marrying ex-King Knut of Denmark. 
It is said though that King Sverker was a peaceful king, which tends to be medieval code for weak and feeble, and that he did little or nothing to stop Danish incursions across the border into the province called Småland. We're told that this passivity frustrated the local women so much that they decided to take matters into their own hands. Under the leadership of a woman called Blenda, they prepared a sumptuous feast in a large barn at a place where the Danes were about to arrive on one of their raids. Just before the Danish troops arrived, the women hid themselves in the forest nearby, so the soldiers found the barn abandoned with this elaborate meal. Apparently, the Danes didn't find this even the least bit strange, and they sat down to feast on food and drink. Of course they ate and drank too much, and when they were just about to doze off, Blenda gave the signal for the women to come out of hiding and butcher the Danish intruders. This story is only made slightly worse by the fact that it never actually happened. The whole thing was almost certainly invented in the 17th century, at a time when Denmark and Sweden were more or less at war all the time. It was a fine piece of propaganda, having the Danes being bested by women. King Sverker died early in the morning on Christmas Day in the year 1156. As he was preparing to set off to church, he was stabbed in the back by one of the men in his retinue. The assassin had been bribed to murder the king by a Danish prince called Magnus Henriksen, who was after the Swedish throne for himself, since he was a descendant of Inge the Elder. It didn't work immediately though, since the Swedes went ahead and elected another guy as King Sverker's successor. But four years later, Prince Magnus had him knifed as well, and in the year 1160 he would finally ascend the Swedish throne as King Magnus of Sweden. To make sure we all get the message about how much of a villain this guy actually was, the sources also insist that he married his stepsister. He'd enjoyed the position as King of Sweden for about a year before he got his comeuppance and was killed himself. We'll have reason to return to Magnus' second victim, Eric, in a future episode, because even though he was king for only four years, he made quite an impression, not only in Sweden, but also across the Baltic Sea. But we'll halt there for now. Next time, we'll continue our tour of 12th century Scandinavian civil wars with a look at the storm that was gathering in Norway. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history, such as in the elevator, at the dentist, or why not at the Winter Olympics opening ceremony. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to get out of bed in the morning. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with uplifting quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. Why not get a coffee mug with the message, wake up early if you want another man's land or life, or a onesie for your baby with the text, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or a decorative pillow for the office couch saying, speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these amazing items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you're more of a Twitterer, 
then you can follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.